Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. It was commonly called emotional incontinence, or some people call it an involuntary emotional expressive disorder. It is more commonly now known as pseudobulbar affect. It can usually present in what looks like a psychiatric disorder, but it may actually be more of a neurologic disorder, although there are overlaps. Dr. William Ondo is a professor of neurology at the University of Texas, and he kindly agreed to explain this condition a bit more to us. Sir, thank you so much for being with us. All right, my pleasure. Tell us, please, a little bit, what is pseudobulbar affect? I think most people have probably never even heard of it. Well, pseudobulbar affect is a syndrome. It is a condition where patients have an increased affective display, most commonly crying, but it could be laughing. The difference is that this affective display is incongruous with their mood. So they may be crying, but they don't necessarily feel sad. It is usually associated with neurologic diseases, uh, neurodegenerative diseases such as Lou Gehrig's disease, Parkinson's disease, stroke, traumatic brain injury, Alzheimer's disease to some extent. And it's been associated with loss of certain areas of brain between the cortex and the brain stem, especially the pons. Is that where it gets the name pseudobulbar, that it looks like it's related to those tracks? The name is confusing to some people. Anytime a name has pseudo in it, it really is not very helpful, I suppose. It was originally thought to be specific to cortical bulbar tracts, so tracts that go from the frontal cortex predominantly into areas in the pons. It turns out that that's probably not true. It, it involves pathology certainly in the pons, but the cerebellum pathology is actually quite prominent in these conditions that tend to have quite a bit of pseudobulbar affect. Does it have a particular pattern if we were to do a PET scan or an MRI scan? Is it diagnosable using those techniques? It's intrinsically very difficult to study because it's seen in other neurologic diseases that have brain pathology. So there isn't any specific MRI finding just for pseudobulbar affect. Now, there have been a number of studies done over the years in looking at a condition, for example, say multiple sclerosis in patients with pseudobulbar affect and multiple sclerosis patients without pseudobulbar affect and looking at MRI differences and spec studies and so forth. And uh, the results are not consistent, but in general, it does show, for example, in multiple sclerosis, patients with brainstem and cerebellar lesions tend to have higher rate of pseudobulbar affect. So it has been intrinsically a difficult thing to study because, again, it's often overshadowed by the underlying neurodegenerative process that's accompanying it. So could we go so far, and, and correct me if I'm oversimplifying this, that this is a symptom of a neurological disorder, a dementia, a stroke, something else, some brain injury? I think that's a safe, uh, safe thing to say. There's never really been an idiopathic pseudobulbar affect described. How common is it? Yeah, well, that's a difficult question. There's never been a definitive door-to-door survey of looking for pseudobulbar affect. Most of the surveys have been done in specific illnesses, and these are all subject to sampling bias and so forth. But in patients, for example, with ALS, up to 50% of patients, ALS may have pseudobulbar affect. Multiple sclerosis, it tends to be maybe 25 30%. In some other neurodegenerative diseases like progressive supranuclear palsy, it's very high. Parkinson's disease, maybe 10 to 20%. Stroke, in certain brainstem strokes, it's very, very high. So it depends on the disease that you're studying. It clearly is not 
rare, but the diagnosis is quite subjective and there's not a definitive line to be drawn between someone who's just a little bit more emotional than usual and someone that would have pathologic pseudobulbar affect. There aren't really exact diagnostic criteria for this condition. Is it the type of condition that gets worse over time if it's not treated or once it starts it's pretty stable? Pseudobulbar affect certainly can wax and wane, and sometimes there may be, it may be associated with worsening disease. In some of these neurodegenerative diseases, it has been associated weakly with overall worse burden of disease. But I wouldn't say it's necessarily progressive. It certainly can wax and wane, and, and we see in clinical practice that we are thinking about treating, they come back six months later, and they've forgotten that it was a problem. So it, it can seem to resolve uh, spontaneously as well. Is there any sense that it is more common in men or women, or is it completely secondary to another process that's really not gender-specific? In the disease-specific trials, there really hasn't been any gender predisposition towards men nor women. Can it be seen in a young child if the young child is in, uh, has a brain injury? It's certainly fairly common in traumatic brain injury. I can't say I'm aware of specific literature that's looked at pediatric brain injury, but I certainly wouldn't be surprised if it, if it could be seen in a pediatric population. So the question is that people have these variety of medical or traumatic injuries, and they go see doctors and they see the moods fluctuating up and down. Very commonly, they're thought to be depressed. Very commonly, they're sent to a psychiatrist and put on antidepressants. What separates this from a depression or a psychiatric disorder and a, a neurologic disorder? And again, knowing that there are huge overlaps. Certainly. So this is always a difficult question. As you said, there are people that have pseudobulbar affect and depression. In fact, one study, two different studies that have looked at pseudobulbar affect and then queried extensively for depression found that about a third of patients with pseudobulbar affect had concurrent depression. So you can imagine that could be a difficult thing to, to sort out. The biggest difference is, again, the incongruent mood. So these patients, in extreme obvious cases, they'll just be crying and they'll have no idea why they're crying. They're not sad or they might start to laugh. They're not necessarily seems funny. So it's, again, affect without mood. Now, some of the subtler things that can help differentiate that is the frequency of these spells can be extreme in patients with pseudobulbar affect. I mean, 20 times a day, 30 times a day, they'll start to cry. But they're also fairly brief in most cases. Usually they're seconds to maybe a minute or two. They're not tearful for hours all day long like someone with depression might be. And of course, it doesn't necessarily have the other components of depression, somatic components, appetite, insomnia, Although, again, these neurodegenerative diseases often have those sorts of symptoms, so that doesn't always help you out. And I would assume, therefore, that one of the diagnostic, shall we say, tests which may fail is giving them a trial of antidepressants. There have been a number of small trials with antidepressant medications, most commonly fluoxetine, which have shown some benefit. Now, there's never been a definitive large multicenter trial, you know, would get an FDA approval. But antidepressant medicines, both SSRIs and amitriptyline, have been shown in controlled trials to have some benefit. Interestingly enough, in contrast to depression, the benefit is almost immediate. So typically within days, the patients can have improvement, whereas, of course, with antidepressants, it can take a month or more to have its full effect. So I'm not sure if that would help sort it 
out because, again, especially serotonin is thought to be involved with this condition. You know, that brings up a very interesting thing because I remember a lot when I was in training, some people who appeared to be depressed would get quick very quickly, and our teachers used to call it a flight into health. And we were told it's too fast. And maybe actually what we were treating was a pseudobulbar affect more than a typical depression. It's a very, You just raised a very interesting point in my head. What does someone do? And the reason that I am so interested in hearing about this with you is that for a long time there did not seem to be a definitive treatment. But now we have one, and people are very curious about how it works because people will look at it and say, isn't that cough syrup, dexamethorphan? Can you tell us a little bit about the role of dexamethorphan in this disorder and its treatment? Can you walk us through it a little bit? Yeah, so the only FDA-approved treatment for, for pseudobulbar affect is a combination of dexamethorphan and quinidine. So dexamethorphan, as you said, is an old drug. It's been around for a long time. It is a little bit of a complicated drug, but it mostly works on glutamate and the NMDA receptor. It's a partial antagonist of the NMDA receptor, and it's also an agonist of something called a sigma-1 receptor, which the bottom line of it, it seems to reduce the release of glutamate. It has some other roles that are a little bit less clear as well. So glutamate is the most common active or stimulating neurotransmitter in the brain. It's, it's throughout the entire brain and certainly in the brain stem. So it's thought to be involved with pseudobulbar pathology in that regard. But frankly, no one can def- really definitively tell you why this medicine works for this. Now, the combination medicine is interesting. It's really, I guess, I think it was the first one that's approved specifically to alter the metabolism of this. So dextamethorphan is very, very rapidly metabolized into dextorphan, which is actually a much more potent NMDA antagonist. And with NMDA antagonists, if you block NMDA receptors too much, you really, you frankly get psychotic. So PCP, for example, the illicit drug, is a very, very potent antagonist of NMDA receptors. And dextorphan is something that seems to have far more, more adverse events or side effects than dextromethorphan. What quinidine does, it's a, a CYP2D6 inhibitor and it prevents the metabolism of dextromethorphan into dextorphan. So you get a much, much greater area under the curve for dextromethorphan and much, much less for dextorphan. And that's the reason that this drug is specifically combined with, again, very low-dose quinidine. Now, quinidine is not a drug that's used a whole lot anymore. Of course, it's an antiarrhythmic drug, and that makes people like me, a neurologist who's not used to those drugs and psychiatrists, a little bit nervous. We're mollified a bit by the fact that the dose is really about 120th of the dose that's used as an antiarrhythmic. And in the studies, there really didn't seem to be any hint of cardiac issues or really any meaningful QT prolongation or anything like that. So the combination is 20 milligrams dexamethorphan, 10 milligrams of quinidine. The dose is one pill twice a day, really quite, quite simple. The effect seems to be immediate, and it was really fairly robust in the studies. In the drug group, there was between an 80 and 90% reduction in episodes of, of crying or, or laughing episodes in the study. And again, it was seen essentially immediately. The tolerability of this combination also seemed to be really quite, quite good. And the response is very quick. You'll know in a day or two or three if going in the right direction. Yeah, I would, I would certainly tell people to give it a couple of weeks. The official dosing is one pill a day for a week and then one pill twice a day after that. Again, I know I'm going in a bit of a circle here, but it's most intriguing that dexamethorphan, being an old cough syrup, is the medication that is working People have said this to me, said, well, why can't I just take cough syrup? And then I tell them about the quinidine. But 
why wasn't this observed earlier? Do you have any sense of how it was developed, how it was discovered that the dexamethorphan should rise to the level of a treatment for this? The dexamethorphan in cough syrup is almost immediately metabolized. And there are pharmacokinetic studies where you take the equivalent of maybe 20 bottles of cough syrup and you have almost no serum levels of dexamethorphan. So I don't think you can really substitute <laughs> Robitussin DM for this medication. I have also wondered about who initially made this observation. It is, I guess, lost in antiquity from 10 or 20 years ago because no one from the manufacturer of this has been able to tell me who, who first noticed that. So I, I simply don't, I don't know <laughs> who, to, who to attribute this observation to. What's interesting also is the historians attribute some of the early concept of the relationship between a neurological insults and a disordered emotional expression was Charles Darwin. He talked about how there were certain brain diseases, these are my words, not his, that have a special tendency to cause people to cry. So it goes back 100 years, over 100 years. Fascinating that it really is just now grabbing hold of, uh, of a place in everyday medicine. Do you teach your residents about this? I ask this because when I was in residency, which was about 30 years ago, I may have heard about it, but we never did anything about it. Do you now bring this to your residents? Is it something that you screen for much more aggressively? I think it's certainly reasonable to screen for it. I think it is very frequently missed. I don't think that residents learn too much about it. And I was resident about 20 years ago and I'm not sure if I recall hearing about it at all at that time in my neurology residency. It is something that certainly should be taught because you have very, very effective treatments for it if it's a big enough problem to treat. Probably the main groups of people that would see this would be neurologists, psychiatrists, and then PM&R docs, I think, are the groups that would most likely see this condition. It's often been suggested that it be used in dementia, and I know there is a lot of controversy and a lot of concern, and rightly so, that some of the psychiatric medications that are used to control the emotional outbursts in the elderly, namely the antipsychotic, may be a little bit too strong. From what you've seen thus far, and this is an opinion, do you think that the dexamethorphan will slowly help calm down some of the things that we now use the antipsychotics for? Yeah, the company that markets this drug is doing phase three trials looking at elderly dementia patients, emotional ability, outbursts at night, the sort of things that atypical antipsychotics are often used for currently. I'm not aware of there was any results from these studies, but they are investing a great deal of time, effort, and money in trying to get an FDA indication for that problem. As you mentioned, there's a fair amount of pushback from the use of antipsychotics in this population because of a variety of side effects, including evidence of increased death rates. So I think there certainly is a, a niche to be filled if, in fact, this drug does prove to be effective in that population. Very interesting material, things that we need to observe carefully. And if someone is listening to this and recognizes these symptoms in themselves or perhaps in a family member, then it's a question that needs to be brought to their physician. Dr. William Ando is a professor of neurology at the University of Texas. And again, sir, thank you. It's been a good overview. All right. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.